Go ahead and flip to 1 Kings chapter 1, and I've just been so blessed covering some new ground, you know. Uh, for me, it's just like I'm learning so much. I, I feel like I'm still in Bible college for sure, you know, going verse by verse through these chapters and gleaning, and it's literally like putting a puzzle together for me because you know, as you go and you're doing word searches and word studies and name studies, and you're just like, oh, and he's related to him, and oh, he did that to him, and oh, I can't believe that he still talks to her, you know, whatever, and uh, definitely exciting for me. I don't know if you guys will, will, will be as excited, but, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're in First Kings chapter 1. Uh, hope you have uh, notebooks with you um, as Bible scholars come in and just write down the things that maybe you've never known before, things you'd like to remember um, and, uh, man, it's so true that you retain so much more as you hear it when you write it down, uh, than when you just let it go in one ear and then hopefully you try to remember it. I just know I've learned so much, uh, throughout the years. And as I was putting all my books on the bookshelf in my office, I came across all my old journals from like my school ministry days and, you know, had never read through them again until you go back through and you're like, oh, wow. And look what the Lord was doing in me then. And, Oh, I totally remember that. And uh, it just sticks in your head so much more. So encourage you guys to be bringing notebooks and your Bibles, of course. And if you don't have one, uh, it looks like there's still one red Bible propped up against the back corner there. So if you need that, feel free to jump up and snag it. But 1 Kings chapter 1, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, before we come to the Word of God, we come to the God of the Word. And we just petition you to speak. We cry out for you to speak to us. And even as we start a new book and do an introduction to it. Uh, we pray that your name would be magnified and your purpose and plans would be revealed and we'd see your heart and your grace and your mercy and your righteous standards, Lord. Even as we examine a book before we start it and, and as we dig into it, Lord, uh, we're just, <laughs> Lord, we're speechless to get to be here tonight. It's not a have-to thing, Lord. We're not made to come here on this Wednesday night, but we get to be with you. And it's just a high point of our week, Lord. And so just speak as we are here to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, well, we're going to do just a quick little introduction. I always like to do a little introduction before we get into books uh, so that we have kind of a full understanding as we get into it. And, um, and so uh, let's go ahead and do just that. First Kings. Um, the first half of First Kings traces the life of David's son, Solomon. And under Solomon's leadership, we see Israel united with Judah. And that's a special thing. I mean, as you're going to start reading the rest of the Old Testament, you're going to be reading of the conflicts in, uh, between Judah and Israel. And, and I know for me, just as a young Bible scholar, not completely understanding why or What's the purpose of them being separated or when did they separate and that type of stuff. I know for me, I always would love to come back to this part where they were united as Judah and Israel. And, um, and so under Solomon's leadership, we see them during this brief period of history, Judah and Israel are united. Now, just for some of you that are already where I have been, uh, what happened, we're going to get to that, but... When I say Israel and Judah divided, I mean, uh, by the time we get to chapter 12, we're going to see a schism within the tribes, and, and uh, the northern tribes of Israel, the northern ten tribes, uh, will be called Israel, okay? And their capital will be up in Samaria, which, which is kind of north-central uh, Israel. And then you have Judah, which is actually Judah and Benjamin, uh, two of those tribes together. And then because the Levites didn't have land given to them as priests, the Levites were kind of like some of them were with Israel and some of them were with Judah down below. So, but Judah were the southern two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. I don't know why it's, it's is it fair that they don't just call them Judah? And, I don't know, but I'm sure Benjamin got the bum rap on that. But, uh, but and a little bit of Levites in their capital is where? Jerusalem. Okay, so their capital is Jerusalem, and then you have the northern ten tribes, and their capital is up in Samaria. So, and so for the, for, not the first time, because under Saul and David, we saw some uniting happen, but, uh, but really, we see, um, we see Israel as a total in all of her glory 
in all of her size, uh, at the peak of her splendor during Solomon's reign. And Solomon, as you've read Solomon, I'm sure, he has all these great accomplishments, like the construction of the temple finally happened. And in about seven weeks, we'll get to that where we read about, oh, the beautiful temple that, that uh, the Lord, you know, um, didn't command to be built, but really allowed to be built so that we could worship him uh, in it, so that they could worship him in it. And so it was a great accomplishment for him to build this huge, beautiful temple. Um, Josephus's accounts, uh, which it was a little, it was different because it had been re- rebuilt, but after Jesus's day, 70 AD, when Rome was ransacking Jerusalem, Josephus, a Jewish historian for the Romans, wrote that you could see the glow of the temple the gold of the temple from 30 miles away. That's how bright the temple shone with the gold. And, and so um, obviously having been rebuilt, but to that same standard that Solomon had built it. And so just glorious building for sure. Just a mere reflection of the glory of God in heaven. And so the temple being a great accomplishment, we all know Solomon is famous for his wisdom. And he was famous throughout the whole world for for his, for his wisdom and for his psalms and for his songs. It's crazy as you'll read about it, over a thousand songs that he wrote. And I was thinking, reading through that today and I was like, how did he have the time to be a king and write a thousand songs? You know, I was a youth pastor for seven and a half years and I wrote a couple piddly little songs, you know, that were horrible and I probably don't even remember them, you know, but over a thousand songs. And so this, these great accomplishments brought him worldwide fame. But one of the sad things, like I was praying out in my prayer, was that uh, Solomon's zeal for God diminished in his later years due to his marriage to pagan wives. And just an example, it is, you know, as Solomon was disobedient and married hundreds and hundreds of pagan wives and how they got him to follow after their gods and to um, compromise in the area of where he worshipped the Lord as he would worship up in the high places And uh, just an example for us to not be unequally yoked, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for what fellowship has light with darkness? There is no fellowship. And so it's so grieving to me when I see Christians marrying non-Christians because for me, Jesus is the most important part of my life, the most important part of my life. He's my all and my everything. And if the other person who's, you know, my second, my second all, my second everything, isn't like-minded with me in regards to my faith in Jesus, then there's just trouble all around and there's lives of sorrow and misery. And, and uh, just as we all know people who have married outside the faith, and perhaps you, you yourselves, you know that heartache, the pain, and, and wanting to sanctify your husband by just continuing to be a, a godly woman or vice versa. And so it's just sad as you see Solomon and his glory and then it says you continue chapter after chapter. He just, he's compromising. He goes downhill. And a lot of that has to do with uh, the marriage uh, to these pagan wives. And, and as a result, a king with a divided heart, when he dies, he leaves behind a divided kingdom. And so that's a really sad thing. If you love Israel, and man, don't we all love Israel? It's just sad to see Israel divided. Um, First Kings records 120 years of two sets of kings for two different divided nations, okay? So 120 years of the kings over these nations and these disobedient people who continued to be growing indifferent to God's precepts and his prophets. And as the prophets would come, they'd just reject the prophets and they'd speak the Lord's precepts and principles and, and urge them to come back to following and obedience, the commands and they just would be indifferent and flat out rebellious and idolatrous and eventually apostate, just completely leaving behind the God who led them out of Egypt. And so that's a sad thing as well. Um, just some, some facts here as we do the introduction, um, and, and they're good to know. It's good to have a handle of the book as we get into it. Uh, First and Second Kings were originally one big book. Just like First and Second Samuel were, it used to just be what we would say, it was just Samuel, or it was just uh, kings. And actually, um, First and Second Samuel, as one book, were, was called the First and Second Kingdoms. 
And then the kings as one book were called the third and fourth kingdoms. And so the reason that they were divided was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the, I hear some, that, that's the key first sound. It's called the Septuagint. Uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint, uh, Greek letters were a lot more and the words were a lot longer. And so it took a lot more scroll paper and so they'd have to divide it into a couple different books to have it there. And so um, most of ours are taken off of that. And so we have these two books there. So the author of the Kings, I always like to tell you who wrote the book. And uh, does anybody know the author of First and Second Kings? It says unknown. Yeah, uh, pretty much unknown, except that uh, there's evidence that supports it. You know, he doesn't say, kind of like Paul says, Paul wrote this. But uh, the evidence supports that it was Jeremiah uh, that wrote it. His style and his prophetic urgings and pleadings, um, you know, the style, it it kind of points to Jeremiah. So uh, it's actually a a guess there, but um, evidence supports that Jeremiah wrote it and uh, as a prophet and a historian. Just some interesting things is in chapter 8, verse 8, and chapter 12, verse 19, we read the phrase in in 8, 8, Chapter 8, verse 8, I like to, you know, be like a, a guy in the ER, 8-8, eight, eight, you know, or 8-8, eight, 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 stat, you know, um, but you know what I mean, chapter 8, verse 8, why say chapter, I mean, we all know, right, just read my mind, uh, chapter 8, verse 8, talking about the temple and all of its splendor, he, he says, and, and they remained like that till this day, okay, but then uh, when you get to the end of 2 Kings, the last two chapters, it's obvious that the Babylonian captivity had happened by this time, and, and so uh, what we can gather from that is that up until the last two chapters of Second Kings, it was all written before the Babylonian captivity. And you see the people's disobedience and the prophets pleading with them to come back in obedience to the Lord or else they're going to be chastened by the Lord. And then we see that something happened where they were chastened and, and they went to Babylon and they were corrected in that Babylonian captivity. And then the last two chapters of Second Kings, you read about what happened. And so a lot of people believe Jeremiah wrote it up to those last two chapters of Second Kings and then, um, and then a, a, a scribe or somebody who was actually in the Babylonian captivity wrote the rest there. So um, just some interesting history there that I can just hear your hearts beat faster as I talk about it. Um, but uh, but uh, it was written to <clears throat> the remaining kingdom of Judah before uh, and after its Babylonian captivity, and, and really it was written to them to warn them. And they didn't heed, and they didn't listen, and they wouldn't soften their hearts. And as Jesus says, it's better that you fall on the rock and be broken, rather than the rock fall on you and grind you to powder. And how the psalmist says, a broken heart and a contrite spirit, he's yet to deny. Man, when we're walking in humility and just brokenness before the Lord, and we've sinned, and we all sin. But like David, when we sin, we fall on the rock, and we're broken. Me being a a visual person, I just picture an egg just falling on a rock and just cracking open, and the yolk is preserved, and the shell is broken, but the yolk is preserved. And uh, But the opposite of that would be setting the egg on the ground and getting a giant boulder and dropping the rock on top of the egg for utter destruction of the egg. So obviously that was an analogy I used with my high school kids and they loved it. You know, oh, eggs, I know eggs, you know. But um, may have been a little bit elementary for you guys. Um, but, uh, but because they wouldn't fall on the rock and be broken and acknowledge their sin and repent and a daily, just a lifestyle of repentance and being sanctified by the Lord, but instead, you know, an occasional king would do right in the sight of the Lord and then you'd see that king would even stray off a little bit. So it's kind of sad that um, as it was written to Judah, uh, they just wouldn't heed and repent and follow after the Lord. And so uh, 1 Kings is a record of disobedience and idolatry and ungodliness, uh, which explains the um, Assyrian captivity of Israel in 722 BC. So Israel, or excuse me, Assyria captured Israel because they wouldn't repent. And, uh, and the prophets call Israel and Judah the sister, uh, the, the sister tribes. And, um, and it's just sad as the sister Judah watches Israel 
judged for her disobedience. She doesn't repent. And then later on in 586 B.C., these are important dates in the history of Israel, 586 B.C., Babylon comes down uh, to Judah and leads them into captivity. So um, a key date for you to write down in your notes or to remember is 951 B.C., okay? 951 B.C. is chapter 12 of 1 Kings. And it's there in chapter 12 that you see the nation divided after Solomon's death under Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And so 951 B.C. is an important date for you guys to remember as the nations divide. Um, I always like to point out Jesus in a book, and believe it or not, in the Old Testament, you see Jesus all throughout. And as Jesus said about the Old Testament, as he explained to the boys, these are they which speak of me. And, it, and he expounded as he was walking with the two on the road to Emmaus, all the things in the law and the prophets and the tabernacle. And how could the tabernacle be fun to read? Oh, boring. You know, but as you look at each thing in the tabernacle, it points to Jesus. As you look at the history of, of Israel, it, you know, we're pointed to Jesus. And so in first Kings, we're pointed to Jesus. Now, Jesus is seen through Solomon in a few different ways. In Solomon's wisdom... Uh, we see Jesus because Jesus came as wisdom from God, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 tells us. And so as wise as Solomon was, and I can't wait to get to that chapter where the Lord says, ask anything that you want of me, ask anything. And Solomon says, Lord, I ask for wisdom that I could lead your people. And, uh, and so what a, a great thing that he asked for. The Lord says, oh, I can't believe you asked for that. It's so awesome. I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to give you so much wisdom. You're not going to know what to do with it. You're going to be so wise. It's going to be awesome. You're going to be so wise. You know? and, uh, and so he is wisdom. And yet here comes Jesus, who's wisdom from God. And then you have Solomon's fame. Can't wait to get to these chapters. Queen of Sheba, you know, coming and visiting Solomon to, to just hear him talk. Just talk to me, Solomon. I just want to hear your wisdom, you know. And that's kind of like my grandpa who passed away about three years ago. I love my grandpa. Um, was a, a B-17 bombardier in World War II. So that automatically just like, boom, kicked him up to the top notch for me. But he was a medical doctor and a corn farmer in Nebraska. And just love hearing his stories. And in his latter years, I would just drive him around. We'd go like feed my horses and stuff. And I'd just be like, Grandpa, speak wisdom into my life. If Grandpa, if you could give me one word of wisdom, what would you give me? And he just speak words of wisdom in my life. And, and so um, somehow that's like Queen of Sheba asking that from. But it's good to have that heart that seeks after wisdom, James tells us. I have a scripture reference for it. James chapter 1, if you read it. Um, <clears throat> but all of his fame, Solomon's fame throughout the world and his glory and his wealth, we're going to read about it, and his honor. They all foreshadow Jesus and all of his fame and all of his glory and all of his wealth in his kingdom. And just as Solomon's kingdom did, Jesus' kingdom will bring knowledge and peace and worship. And as great as Solomon was, Jesus says when he came, when Jesus came, he says of himself in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Isn't that amazing? Solomon was great, but Jesus says, hey, I'm here, and I'm greater than Solomon. And later on, after chapter 12, we're going to read of Elijah and his ministry to King Ahab. And, um, and he's a little more typical of John the Baptist. People often likened Elijah to John the Baptist, and yet we even see a little bit of, of Jesus' uh, prophetic and miracle ministry uh, compared to Elijah's. And uh, remember, Jesus says, Who do men say that I am? And the disciples said, Some say Elijah. You know, he was kind of compared to Elijah a little bit, but we'll get to that later. Uh, the theme, I always give a theme when I start a book. The theme of First Kings is the welfare of Israel and Judah depends upon the faithfulness of the people and their king to the covenants. The welfare of Israel and Judah depended, it was synonymous with how faithful the people and the king were to the covenants. And it's a similar theme to 2 Samuel and a similar thing to Deuteronomy that when we're obedient, there's what? Blessing. But when we're disobedient, there's judgment. And so that's a similar theme. If you just remember that, I'll give you a B plus on the test when we have it. Uh, historically, 
First King gives us a, an account of the reigns from Solomon to Jehoshaphat, which was for Judah, and Solomon to Ahaziah in Israel. So there's the historical uh, writings there that we're going to read, which I love. And then um, theologically, we have a prophetic evaluation of what happens when you're obedient, the blessing, and when you're disobedient, the judgment. A couple of key verses. I always like to hone in on the key verses of a book. Uh, the key verses of, and you might just flip there in your Bible and just underline it. And I have in my Bible a little picture of a key, you know, and I wrote key, draw a picture, and point an arrow. So if you're like me, and I can't draw at all, but uh, the key verses are 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 4. Go ahead and flip over there. 1 Kings 9, 4. Uh, chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. He says, now if you walk before me, this is to Solomon, as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. Okay, so then you have the result of Solomon's disobedience in 1 Kings 11.11, where it says, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. And so just sadly, you see the decline of Solomon and the promise there, if you're obedient, I'll bless you. The promise is there for us today, too. If you're obedient, if you're obedient and in, in you walk in integrity and uprightness and everything you do, even the little things, you know, filling out your tax paperwork and you, you're tempted to just kind of say you have a dependent or, you know, whatever. I don't even know if that's a good thing, but Lindsay, is that, would that be, that would be cheating. Okay. Thank you, Lindsay. CPA. Um, I haven't touched a tax form since I was 17, and even then my mom did it for me. So was that cheating? I don't know. But, um, you know, even in the little things, you just walk in uprightness of heart. You know, I have my wife is my little conscience in regard to pirating music, you know. So you're going to burn that? Well, it's for a friend. And Yeah, I know. I think that's what pirating is. Oh. (laughs) But, uh, you know, walking in integrity in those little things, you know, as you're a in construction, you know, and you have zoning for certain rooms and you're adding on a portion of a room for your grandma and it's just so much easier to just call it a closet, you know, and well, technically it's a closet. We're throwing grandma in the closet and do we really need an electrical permit, you know, and, and, um, and just how the Lord blesses when we're walking in uprightness of heart, uh, even in those little things. And so uh, a couple people got up and walked out during that little spiel and no, they didn't, but. Kevin was wanting to. I could see it. What? I never once time in my life. But uh, then we have, I just want to give you an outline of First Kings and how an outline can just unlock a book for us. If you have an outline to the book of Romans, you know, then, then you have the book of Romans almost nailed. I mean, you can go back to those things. And, and, and so we have an outline of First Kings. And even if you just have the simple outline, you'll be able to just flip back to the chapters and and get it real fast, and find the reference. So sorry if it's a little hard to read, but the outline of 1 Kings, we have part one, which is really the first half of the book, which is the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom, chapters 1 through 11, and that covers 40 years in Jerusalem. 40 years are covered for Solomon there. And the first part of that is the establishment of Solomon as king, which we'll read tonight. Uh, Then we have the rise of Solomon as king, chapters 3 through 8. And then we have the decline of Solomon as king, chapters 9 through 11. So if you can just remember, the first half of the book is all about Solomon and and his, his, you know, you'll remember that forever. No. Then we have part two, which is the kingdom divided, uh, chapters 12 through 22. And this covers 90 years in Samaria, which is where Israel's capital was. And Jerusalem, Judah's capital, 90 years in that second half of the book where we read of the division of the kingdom there in chapters 12 through 14. The reigns of the kings of Judah and Israel, we'll just read all about that. Some of them are quick, some of them are a little longer. And then the reign of Ahab and the ministry of Elijah, which covers chapters 16 through 22. So that's just a little outline. And and after the Bible study, we can throw that back up if you want to write that down. 
for a little more time. So that's pretty much my introduction to the book. Hopefully it gives you a little bit of a handle on it. And um, I know for me, I'm really excited to go through because even before I knew that I was moving out as a youth pastor, if you would have asked me one of my weaker areas as a pastor, I'd tell you the kings. I'd tell you the kings. I'm weak in my knowledge of the kings. Even in the last, since February, I've been reading through First and Second Kings. And as Lindsay and I would read to, through together, I'd be like, okay, uh, Saul, David, Solomon, uh, Jer- or Re- Rehoboam, you know, and already I'm fumbling, you know. And then once you get to those hard names to pronounce, it's just like, oh, bink. You know, your brain just explodes out of the back of your head. So I'm excited to walk through this with you guys. And I think we will all be learning together. And I'm sure that some of you have way more of a knowledge of it than me. So when, when you have little things to come and share, um, definitely I am a student and I'm learning with you guys. So I have to learn about our new time. Uh, when did I tell you guys we'd be done? Nine o'clock? Okay, so nine o'clock. It is, okay, no. Okay, here we go. Chapter one, verses one through four. I'm not joking. Halverson's, I'm not joking. It might be nine o'clock tonight. Then we'll see who's laughing. Now, King David was old, advanced in years, and they put covers on him, but they could not get, he could not get warm. Therefore, his servant said to him, let a young woman, a virgin, be sought for our Lord the king, and let her stand before the king, and let her care for him, and let her lie in your bosom, that our Lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a lovely young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very lovely, and she cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. So uh, David is getting old, about 70 years old, and uh, some of you might be thinking, man, the older I get, the younger that seems. Um, But uh, he's 70 years old at this point, and he's cold. He's old and cold, and uh, he just can't get warm. And some of you might be experiencing that uh, circulatory system issue. I remember when my grandpa Khan, one of my heroes, was getting older, he couldn't get his feet warm at night. And so we bought him these huge boots. They looked like massive, you know, ox-covered, ox-skin boots that were like glued together. They were, you know, they, were, they had electrical wiring through them. And so they were just these huge boots that, you know, you couldn't walk in them. You'd fall over because they're glued together. But, you know, it had this big power cord coming out of them, and you'd crank them up, and they'd kind of vibrate a little bit, you know, or whatever. But, and, uh, and he'd just sit there in his rocking chair, you know, with the, these huge fur, goat fur, whatever they were on, you know, and try and get his feet warm at night. And it was sad to watch him sleep in them, though, you know. They're sticking up out of the sheets about three feet. But, um, but as my grandpa experiences, so did King David. And we just encouraged him that, don't worry, grandpa. Even David experienced this. But um, uh, so, you know, he can't get warm at night. He's got covers on him. And so uh, they go and get the Old Testament equivalent of an electric blanket, and they place it on him. A young virgin. Now we see that, (laughs) it's funny, as I'm writing this, I don't even think it's a joke. I'm like, yes, this is what it was. (laughs) I thought I was being deep here, I don't know. (laughs) Thought I'd get amens, but instead, okay. (laughs) That was a joke, okay. It's going to be hard to get through this book because it just keeps getting better. So we see that this was a completely pure relationship, okay? A completely pure relationship, okay? Now, automatically, when you read this, you're just like, this is just wrong, you know? How could he be like that with a young girl? And um, let me put it to you this way. If it was an older woman... You've got separate issues, okay? Uh, If it was a young boy, you've got other problems. I'm just trying to reason through this with you guys. If it was an older man, you've got a whole other set of problems. So, you know, his physicians and everybody get together and they just think, what's the best way to keep our king warm? And so he's just an old man at this point. He just wants to be warm. And so they find him... This gal named Abishag, and uh, <clears throat> our tour guide that we've gone through for the last like 12 years in Israel, his name is Elon, and he is incredible, and for 12 years we've pleaded with him to accept Jesus, and he's been so close at times, and 
And we even, you know, we're in Israel and we're pointing to everything points to Jesus. And he understands that. He just won't surrender. And so Elon is just, he's even come to Corvallis and visited us over there. And um, someday when we go to Israel, we will request Elon. But uh, we got to meet his daughter. We picked her up at school one day with this huge Israeli tour bus. You know, and on comes Abishag, his daughter. And, um, and so Abishag was a beautiful girl, it says. She was a Shunammite. Now, Shunam is at the base of Mount Tabor. And we have another slide here. Um, since we can't go to Israel, occasionally I'll bring Israel to you. And uh, this is Mount Tabor uh, from the south, a little bit the southwest side. And as this other hill that the picture's taken from curves over, Nazareth is just on the the other side of that hill, okay? So you're practically on the, you know, you're within spitting range of Nazareth, you know, right there where Jesus was raised. And, um, and so you have Mount Tabor, which you'll never forget it when you've seen it because it's just out in the middle of nowhere and it's this little hill there. And uh, lots of stuff happened as you read Judges where Deborah led uh, Barak in a mighty victory. It was there at Mount Tabor. And, uh, but anyways, Abishag is from the base there where all those little houses are. That's Shunem. And so you can just picture them going and finding kind of like a fairy tale. You know, they went and tried to find a beautiful young girl and they found her with the, the glass slipper, you know, there in uh, Shunem. And so she was a, a beautiful young girl, a virgin, which was a, a reference to her purity, but also her freedom from domestic responsibility. You know, her sole responsibility was just to, to help keep David warm and to just uh, really nurse him. Uh, Josephus, you know, that historian I was telling you guys about earlier, that Roman historian during uh, 70 AD period, quotes several doctors, even up through the Middle Ages it's quoted, that uh, doctors considered this a very therapeutic remedy um, all throughout history, that this is how they would help keep older people warm and people with these circulatory dis- uh, disorders. So, uh, so Abishag would lie on his bosom and keep him warm, completely pure relationship. And so um, on a cold, chilly night at the Rogers house, uh, I lean over and just say, will you be my Abishag and keep me warm tonight? No, I've never said that. Um, but after reading this, you guys make sure she talks to me after the service, okay? Verse 5, then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. So here we have David's uh, son, Adonijah, and it's such a great name that he has. It's such a neat name. Adonai, which means Lord, Master, Ruler, Lord and Master and Ruler. And and the last half of the name, Jah or Yah for Yahweh, or the name itself meaning Yahweh is Lord. And so it's it's great to see this beautiful name, but it's so sad to see that he didn't live up to his name, Adonijah, the son of David. Now, Adonijah wasn't David's firstborn. Amnon was, but we know that Amnon raped Tamar, and so um, Absalom killed Amnon. Okay, so there goes the firstborn. He's dead. And then we have a secondborn who is Chiliab. And you never read of him again except for in 2 Samuel 3, uh, chapter 3, Chiliab, the secondborn. You never hear of him again. So perhaps he died as an infant. Perhaps he died in battle. Who knows? He's never mentioned again. Then you have Absalom, the thirdborn son. And we all remembered what happened to him, you know, as, as he led a revolt against David and his, his army was losing Uh, He had huge hair, five pounds worth of hair on his head. And as he rode his donkey underneath the tree, his hair got stuck in the tree. And Joab took a spear and thrust him through uh, with the spear. And so uh, Joab killed his own cousin, Absalom. So there goes three of David's oldest sons. Um, Then you have Adonijah, the fourth son. So he wasn't the oldest son, but he was uh, probably the the last living oldest son, you know, the oldest last living son. And then after him, there was Shephatiah, Ithrium, and eventually uh, Solomon. So here Adonijah thinking, hey, you know, after he watches Amnon die, ooh, I have a chance of being king. You know, as he watched Chiliab die, however he died. Then he watches uh, Absalom die, how, you know, through the spear. And he's like, woohoo, 
you know? He's like, I get to be king someday. And as I've watched Lion King so many times this week, he just can't wait to be king as the song goes. Uh, I just can't get it out of my head. Pray for me, guys. Pray for me. Hopefully that's the last Lion King reference in the sermons. Um, but, but Adonijah uh, realized, you know, this is my chance. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to be king, but it wasn't who the Lord had to be king. He wasn't who the Lord had, had, uh, had um, exalted to be king. And Adonijah obviously knew this, and he tries to manipulate the situation here, and he tries to jockey the situation by making himself king. And so he takes it upon himself. And he gets a, a crowd going, and he, he gets a procession going, and it says here that he exalted himself. And something to note, and just right in the margin of your Bible, is when you exalt yourself, it always leads to your humiliation. It always will lead to your humiliation. You know, as Romans tells us, don't think of yourselves higher than you ought. And as James and Peter tell us, that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so just I'm aware of that so much as a young pastor that it's not me. It's, it's not me. I never want it to be about Rory. I never want to exalt myself. I always want to, to give the glory back to where it's due. Um, and so Adonijah makes a huge mistake of exalting himself, and he's eventually humiliated. And he makes this huge procession together, uh, chariots and horsemen and 50 men. 50 men. I tried to find a picture of, of 50 men to give us some idea, you know, but just picture 50 men walking in order throughout the streets, uh, calling out for their new king. Obviously, it would get the public aware of it, and they're starting to realize that, hey, Adonijah must be our new king. And uh, so here comes the procession. And then in verse 6, and his father, and this is a parenthetical statement, it's in parentheses. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? He was also very good looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. So the first thing to note there is that David never rebuked Adonijah for this, this flaw, this taking it upon yourself, this exalting himself. He never corrected his son. And this was a great error on David's part. He knew what was going on. And if he would have just nipped it in the bud right away, what are you doing? You know that it's not that it's my will, son. I still love you, but, but the Lord has chosen Solomon, you know, and, and, you know, son, you're in the wrong. And if he could have done it rightly and corrected his son in love and encouraged his son and not given his son some kind of complex about himself. And, but the thing is, is I'm sure that if Adonijah would have had a, a right heart, then he would have been made king. But, you know, uh, David errs in that he doesn't confront Adonijah. It's crazy to see brave David, the giant slayer, being afraid of confrontation at times. Um, I definitely can relate with him there. And, uh, and so we see throughout Scripture that David was a good king, a great king, a great warrior, but he wasn't a very good father. He was a great king. And it reminds me of a, of a special I watched on Dale Earnhardt, you know, the number three uh, what was he called the Black Knight or something like that? The oh, the Intimidator. I came into NASCAR after he died, but um, you know. And as you watch this documentary on on Dale Earnhardt and how he's this incredible Intimidator race car driver, and his son, it's incredible because you watch this footage of his son Dale Jr. going to all the races and wearing his dad's cap and his dad's uniform and being there in the in the uh, in the garage and help working on the car and learning everything and. You see these, this footage of this young Dale Earnhardt looking up at his dad and just, you know, really idolizing his dad. And then, you know, later on, Dale Jr. even makes it to be a race car driver and races with his dad. But then after his dad dies in a car accident, this documentary is interviewing Dale Jr. Uh, about uh, his father. And Dale would just come to tears talking about how his dad was a horrible father. You know, his dad was run by the tracks. His dad was all about racing, and he, you know, really didn't ever have time for his son. It's just so sad to watch Dale Jr. tear up there and talk about how his dad was a poor father, and really he owned the world, but he was a poor dad. And just the lesson there for us with David and with Dale Earnhardt, uh, there will be a lot of wonderful NASCAR applications throughout the years, but, um, but that, man, your business might be the booming business in Prineville. 
But, you know, where, where are your priorities and where is your family at? And what is the legacy you're leaving behind as we're going to see uh, David's legacy in the next coming chapters? It's just a sad thing. And Solomon, you know, kind of in a Dale Jr. experience, is able to watch his dad as a father. And through the years, you know, he, he watches these things happen with his older brothers and they're murdering each other and they're raping their sisters. And well, why isn't dad the king, the mighty warrior, just slamming down the rod and bringing some discipline to the house and and solomon looking back on his past experiences and also having all that wisdom that the lord gifted him with was able to write in the proverbs so much about correcting your children and how it's so wise as a father and as a mother to to correct your children even with the rod and if you'll flip over to proverbs chapter 13 just flip over there Proverbs 13, verse 24, you know, we live in a day and age where it's frowned upon to discipline your children in any way, let alone with a rod. And, you know, you have to be so careful to, as to where you discipline your children, and, and for many reasons, of course. But for one, you know, you can get turned in these days, and, and it's illegal in other countries to discipline, to spank your children. And I wouldn't be surprised within the next few years if, if just flat out any type of correction of your children um, physically will be outlawed, you know. And, um, and yet, you know, in, in whatever case, we have the wise, inspired words here in Proverbs. Of Proverbs thirteen twenty four. he who spares his rod hates his son. You hate your son if you don't correct your children. Because people think they're loving their children by not correcting them, but really you're hating them. You're setting them up for failure if you're not correcting them or, or really uh, sparing your rod. But he who loves him disciplines him promptly. The moment it happens, there's, you're showing love by disciplining him. And then flip over to Proverbs twenty two fifteen, And you know, this is a whole study in and of itself, but just as we're studying David and how he failed to correct his children uh, there's just wisdom, to, and as we're studying Solomon, I think there's just wisdom to look back on this. And uh, I'm sure, you know, Barb and the other gals in the children's ministry are saying, hey, man, let's see some disciplinary action, you know, especially you, Rory. I've had to repaint the nursery four times since you guys moved to Prineville. Sorry. Uh, but Proverbs 22:15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. And then Proverbs 23, just over a chapter, verse 13. Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. There's a lot of encouragement there, isn't there? <laughs> Moving right along. If I don't say anything, then I'm not incriminating myself. No, I'm kidding. Um, Proverbs 27, verse 1. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. And that goes for not only our children, but our friendships. Oh, I don't know if I should talk to them about this. I know they're in sin, and no one's, ta- no one's telling them they're in, in sin and in wrong, and they're sinning against God. And, and you know what? It's better to just openly rebuke them and to get, it, get them healed and pointed in the right direction and in restored, restored fellowship with God than to just cover it up and act like it's not happening and it's just continuing on, and, and they get sucked deeper and deeper into sinful lifestyle. Um, you know, David should have just openly rebuked Adonijah right in the beginning. And then over two chapters, the Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and rebuke give wisdom. Both of those things, the rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. And how we've seen that with Absalom, how we've seen that with Amnon, how we've seen that with, uh, Adonijah. And then flip over to Hebrews chapter 12, verse five. And of course, when you're talking about correcting your children with the rod, of course, it's always to be done in love and never to be done with a lost temper. Never to be done with a lost temper. Always to be done in love. But it is to be done. And as you read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, there's a comparison of how we're corrected by our fathers and we're also corrected by our heavenly fathers and heavenly father and how Uh, It's a healthy thing to be rebuked. It's a healthy thing to be chastened. All of us need it. And in Hebrews 12, 5, it says, And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. 
For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. That's a quote of Proverbs 3.11. And if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, we're all partakers of discipline in our lives, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in submission to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So no correction, no time that the rod has swatted the little bottom. Has it ever been, woohoo, you know? It's always been painful. It's always been a time of tears. But afterwards, it always yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And so if David would have led by example, chastened his children, what state would Israel have been in? And, uh, and so just sad to see him as a great king, but not the best father. And because he did not correct Adonijah, we're going to read a near repeat of the whole Absalom uh, situation occurs. Can you imagine having it happen twice with your sons that they lead a revolt um, against you? And so uh, we also read there in verse 6 that, that Adonijah was a very good-looking young man. You know, David was ruddy and good-looking. Absalom was ruddy. Was a, I don't know about ruddy, but he was good-looking, we know. Very good-looking man. And here we have Adonijah, a good-looking, spoiled young man who thinks he can get whatever he wants and manipulate the situations. And, um, and so, yeah, verse 7. You guys are looking at 53 verses in this chapter. Don't worry, it'll go pretty fast. Then he conferred with Joab. So this is Adonijah. He counsels with Joab. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar, the priest. And they followed and helped Adonijah. So Adonijah takes with him in this little bit of rebellion against his dad and against the Lord, really, takes with him Joab, who we all know, he's famous as David's general, his military general. And then we have Abiathar, the priest, who was a close friend of David's and had stayed in Jerusalem during Absalom's revolt. And he acted as a spy, you remember, and sent back word to David, letting them know when Absalom was going to attack David's position. And so uh, Adonijah takes with him Joab, military general of David's. David didn't really like him much anyways, but still. Uh, And then he also takes Abiathar, a friend of of David's, a priest. And then in verse 8, but Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Ray, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. So those who didn't go with Adonijah were Zadok, who uh, was also a priest, just like Abiathar, and he also stayed behind and acted as a spy when Absalom led that revolt. Then we have uh, Benaiah, uh, who was uh, a mighty man of valor, one of the most famous. He was ahead of three mighty men of valor. He was the most honored of, of three, and he was also the head of David's personal bodyguard. And as you read about Benaiah there, we did a study on him a couple weeks ago in Second Samuel 23, uh, you remember that he was the one, a, a valiant man, who killed a, a lion in a pit on a snowy day. And he also is, is one who uh, killed an Egyptian. And, and the word was used that the Egyptian, Egyptian was a spectacular man whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And Benaiah went to the spectacular man and wrestled the man and got his spear away from him and killed him with his own spear. And so Benaiah, a famous Man, a famous mighty man of valor, when you read his name, you're, you sit up a little bit straighter when you think about him, you know? And, um, and so what a foolish uh, guy Adonijah was leading a revolt that was going to be going against Benaiah. Um, Nathan the prophet stayed with David. Nathan was a loyal friend of David's, and he would speak the truth in love to David. You remember when he confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, You know, just like the scriptures say, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And 
And Nathan was a friend, and he knew these wounds were going to prove faithful as he confronted David on his sin with Bathsheba. Um, You guys remember when David wanted to build the temple, and he had it wielding up within his heart to build the temple, and Nathan right away said, do all that's in your heart. And then he goes home that night, and the Lord says, hey, wait a second, why don't you talk to me about this, you know? And Nathan went back to David the next day and said, you can't, you can't build the, t- the house for the Lord because you have too much blood on your hands. And so he would speak the truth, and David would eventually name one of his sons Nathan. Then we have Shemaiah, and it's interesting that Shemaiah is noted here that he didn't side with Adonijah because he's the one, you guys remember, who threw the dust at David and cursed David as David was fleeing from Absalom. And as you know the story, David's fleeing from Absalom, and he's going up the, the Mount of Olives, and as he goes, here comes Shemaiah running along the hill line with him, and he's throwing rocks and dust, and he's cursing David. But then when David wins the battle and comes back into Jerusalem victorious, here comes Shemaiah again, and this time he's not throwing rocks and kicking dust. What's he doing this time? Pleading for forgiveness and humbling himself and saying, forgive me, please don't kill me, you know? And now that there's another revolt starting to happen, Shemaiah goes, I know who I'm siding with this time. You know, I'm siding with David. So interesting that it even uh, mentions him there. Then we have Ray, and we don't know much about Ray because he's never mentioned again, but there he is. And then it also says, in the mighty men who were with David, all those guys in 2 Samuel 23 who are listed with Benaiah, none of them sided with Adonijah. Um, and so those are who were with David. Verse 9, and Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatted cattle by the stone of Zoaleth, which is by En-Rogel. He also invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, uh, the king's servants. So this would definitely seem like an official inaugural party here. Um, And the sacrifice provided a huge feast for the guests, but also it had religious, uh, you know, hintings towards it. The Lord has his hand on me adonijah becoming the king when really he didn't and um if you could just throw up that last map uh lakin or not lakin lana sorry uh at the bottom whoa that is way tinier than i thought it would be but uh, and i don't have my laser pointer on me but um basically this is the temple mount here's the temple right in this area uh and it faces off towards the mount of olives right here the garden thank you the garden of gethsemane okay All of this down here is the city of David, okay? City of David. Someday, Elon will take us to the city of David together. And then right down here, we have the N, what was it called? That's really bad writing on there. Uh, The N, help me out here. Thank you. N Rogel Spring right here. It says it right there. So just to give you a little idea, um, this is where the party and the sacrifices are taking place. And we're going to come back to that map a little bit later. Um, So he's throwing this party. He invited all of... Glad Mike's not here to see that. (laughs) Invites all of uh, David's sons, but then in verse 10, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, the mighty man, or Solomon, his brother. And so Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David, our Lord, does not know it? Come, please, let me now give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go immediately to King David and say to him, did you, not, did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Then, while you are still talking there with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went into the chamber to the king. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was serving uh, the king. And Bathsheba bowed and did homage to the king. And then the king said, what is your wish? Then she said to him, my Lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your maidservant, saying, assuredly Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. So now, okay, so real quick there, the recording of that promise from David is in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 9. And so for the sake of time, you can flip there, but you don't have to, but I'm going to read 9 through 13 of 1 Chronicles 22, where David is telling Solomon what God told him. And he says, Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. 
He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So that's the only actual recording of that promise in the scripture, but apparently David passed that along uh, to Bathsheba. Um, And so did you guys know that when uh, Solomon was born to Bathsheba, it says the Lord loved Solomon? The Lord loved Solomon, and so you see the Lord raising him up to be king there. Uh, verse uh, nine, or 18, so look, now look, Adonijah has become king. And now, my Lord, the king, you do not know about it. He has sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, he's not invited. And as for you, my Lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are on you that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my Lord, the king, after him. Otherwise, it will happen when my Lord, the king, rests with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders. And so, because uh, Solomon could have been the replacement to David, they would have been killed, both him and his mom. Um, And uh, just then, while she was still talking with the king, Nathan the prophet also came in. And so they told the king, saying, here is Nathan the prophet, And when he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my Lord, O king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down today and has sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And look, they are eating and drinking before him. And they say, long live King Adonijah, but he has not invited me, uh, me, your servant, nor Zadok the priest, nor Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, nor your servant Solomon. Basically, his whole confidant group has not been invited. And uh, has this thing been done by my lord the king, and, and you have not told your servant who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? And one quick note, isn't it neat to see Nathan, the very man that confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba, ministering together with Bathsheba for David's good and you can see the sin has been forgiven, and um, I just thought that was cool because um, there's just there's been a, a new relationship built there. Um, and the king, or excuse me, then the king answered, verse 28, then King David answered and said, call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king, and the king took an oath and said, as the Lord lives who's redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, assuredly Solomon, your son shall be, it's like the 10th time you read that part. Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my palace. So I certainly will do to this day. Then Bathsheba bowed, uh, and man, I love that promise. As the Lord lives, who's redeemed my life from every distress. You might underline that in verse 29. Uh, neat remembering that David has there. Bathsheba, verse 31, bowed with her face to the earth and paid homage to the king and said, let my Lord King David live forever. She's just thrilled. And David said, that's probably not going to happen, you know. Um, but it was a nice little blessing there. Thanks, Bathsheba. And King David said, call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. The king also said to them, take with you the servant of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. So it was a, an impressive thing to be riding on a mule back then. Uh, they were expensive, not to mention the king's mule, which showed that Solomon had the favor of David. He's riding David's, uh, he's riding in the royal limousine, if you will. Uh, so they, so uh, he's riding on his mule and he, they took him down to Gihon. And so, uh, yeah, Gihon is, thank you, right in that area. Uh, the little red dotted line over to another spring is Hezekiah's tunnel, which we will crawl through someday. Side note. Um, <clears throat> There let uh, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel and blow the horn and say, long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne and he shall be king in my place for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king and said, amen. May the Lord God of my Lord the king say so too as the Lord has been with my Lord the king. Even so, may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. And I love that we have a quote from Benaiah in the word. It's like, yeah, I want to hear his voice, you know. So Benaiah finally talks. He was kind of strong, silent type until then. Um, but a great blessing over Solomon there from Benaiah. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, which were David's bodyguards, 
that Benaiah was over, went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and took him to Gihon. Then Zadok the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon, and they blew the horn, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, and the people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. You might underline that. There's so much joy, the earth seemed to split as Solomon was anointed king. And how he's a picture of Jesus thousands of years later, you know, in, when Jesus was going in and was being heralded as king in Jerusalem, and all the disciples were crying out, Hosanna! And all the people were crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! And the Pharisees said, Jesus, quiet down your disciples. And he says, if I told them to be quiet, then even the rocks would shout. But what another picture we have here as, as Solomon is being anointed king and the earth is about to split in two, how in Zechariah chapter 14, you read a prophecy of the second coming of Jesus that when he comes down after the battle of Armageddon and he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives will split in two and a giant stream will bubble forth out of the Mount of Olives and it will flow west towards the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and flow east towards the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, and that salty Dead Sea area where there's no life will flourish with life once again uh, as the Messiah comes and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. And the amazing thing is, is uh, work has been done to this day, and there's a massive spring underneath the, underneath the mountain. Uh, as, as people have done research, a massive spring that if that prophecy were to come true, which we know it will, uh, it will just water that entire area. And I heard someone's 8 o'clock watch beep, and so I will be quiet. Now, Adonijah and all his guests who were with him, not actually quiet, but I'll, I'll stop the commentary. And uh, Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished eating. They hear, hear the shout, and they're all having their party. And when Joab heard the sound of the, the horn, he said, why is the city in such a noisy uproar? While he was still speaking, there came uh, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar the priest, and Adonijah with him. Come in, for you are, a, Adonijah said to him, come in, for you are a prominent man and bring good news. And then Jonathan, Debbie Downer, answers and t- said to Adonijah, wah, wah. no, our Lord King David has made Solomon king, which Jonathan, I don't think, was in, all, in on all this. Jonathan was, a, was also, a, well, you know, he could have been with Abiathar, his dad, but he was also one of those spies back in the day. Our Lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and they made him ride on the king's mule. So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon, and they have gone up from their rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you've heard. Also, Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom, and moreover, the king's servants have gone to bless our Lord King David, saying, may God make the name of Solomon better than your name, David's name, and may he make his throne greater than David's throne. Then the king bowed himself on his bed. (laughs) David, just exhausted from the whole procession, just falls down on his bed. Also, the king said thus, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who's given one to sit on my throne this day while my eyes see it. So all the guests who were with Adonijah were afraid and arose and each one went his way. Now Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told Solomon saying, indeed, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon for look, He's taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And then Solomon says, If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar. And he came and fell down before King Solomon. Solomon said to him, Go to your house. So we'll go ahead and have the worship team come back up. And uh, you can put your Bibles down. An amazing thing as we're closing is that Adonijah went into the temple and grabbed a hold of the horns of the temple. And if you know and you've studied the, the temple, uh, and if we ever go to Israel, they have uh, the tabernacle, excuse me, was what he went into. The tabernacle. There's a lady that owns a tabernacle outside of the Dead Sea. Camels and everything. And, and you can walk through and see the table of showbread and the altars and all those things and uh, that she has made and her, her family has made. But As you go into the tabernacle, there's only one entrance into the tabernacle. If you're going to go into the Holy of Holies to meet with God and to be in his presence, there's only one way in. And Jesus says, I am that one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. No man comes to the Father but by me. 
And as you would go and you'd enter into the outer court area, kind of like a, a, a yard, a fenced-in yard, before you got to the building with the Holy of Holies, you would come to the, the altar. And it's there at the altar that you'd see the sacrifices being made. And you'd remember that it's by the blood being shed that you're forgiven of your sins so that you can go in and have fellowship with God once again. And that there was one who was being an innocent one who was being killed for you. And just how Jesus, as Hebrews tells us, he was a better sacrifice than the blood of bulls and goats. Because his blood doesn't cover our sin, it erases our sin and blots it out. And not only does it do that, but the blood of bulls and goats couldn't give us a clean conscience, Hebrews tells us. But the better sacrifice through Jesus gives us a new, clean conscience. And so as Adonijah ran to the horns of the temple that were on the four corners of the horns, and he grabbed on and he cried out for mercy and grace to be lavished on him so we can come tonight. And as he received it from Solomon, the grace and the mercy, if you will come to the altar tonight and grab hold of the horns, And ask that that sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf wash away your sin and cleanse your conscience for good works. Tonight you'll be forgiven. Grace will be given to you. And all you have to do is just pray the best way that you can. Call out to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm grabbing onto the altar tonight. Let the blood, the innocent blood of Jesus wash away my sins forever. And if you'll pray that in your heart tonight, you'll be saved. You'll be made new tonight. Let's stand and we'll close with song.